We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chicken intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. No woman today. Leslie Marshall is in New York City doing her, her uh, television hits live. Uh, as a matter of fact, she wants everyone to know that she'll be on Fox News Channel's O'Reilly Factor debating Andrea Tanteros uh, tonight. Uh, that's at 8 p.m. Eastern if you want to watch Leslie. In the meantime, uh, our good friend Brad Bannon uh, and myself are guest hosting, holding down the fort. And uh, we are now going to be joined by Roan Carey of TheNation.com. He helped write a great piece talking about how to solve the conflict in Syria. And I wanted to have him on because it's something that's been uh, top of mind for myself um, continuously throughout this conflict. But I think as with a lot of other people... um, I don't know how else to say it, but my heart was ripped out and stomped on when I saw that three-year-old little boy, uh, Ilan Kurdi, I believe his name is, um, face down on uh, the beach in Turkey as he drowned when uh, his father and family were trying to escape the sectarian violence uh, in Syria. So this is a great piece. It kind of unpacks, I think, what's a very complicated issue for many Americans, um, because to some people it's a distant problem, you know, over there. Um, but even for those of us who are very engaged in it, I think it's kind of hard to always be on top of who the players are. And once you figure all that out, which is not that easy, what do we do about it and how do we fix it? So uh, to help us talk about that and bring up some uh, great ideas in this piece, as I said, we've joined, uh, we're joined by Roan Carey. If you'd like to follow Roan on Twitter, it's just at R-O-A-N-E-C-A-R-E-Y. And you can also go to thenation.com to read his work. And uh, Roan, thanks for joining us. It's good to be on the show. So, um, Roan, you know, as you were helping to write this piece, um, you know, you guys kind of, let's start off with, you know, the conflict itself. Um, a lot of people know how bad it is, but I think some people, you know, even when you hear these numbers, it's just hard to absorb the sheer magnitude of just how much has been lost. Half of the Syrian population, 12 million people, have been displaced from their country since fighting broke out over four years ago, and 300,000 people have died. Um, including that little boy that I mentioned. Um, it's it's a conflict, really, that, you know, is unparalleled in recent history, um, and it's something that I think a lot of people feel frustrated by, and they they want it to end, and they want something to be done about it, but there's no clear solution to some people because, you know, as as people have brought up, you, you have Assad on one side who's, you know, enacting genocide on people that he disagrees with and now being 
propped up by Russia, as we found out today. There's some ground troops being brought in. And another part of that side, which, you know, you mentioned in the piece, is it's not just Russia who's been supporting Assad. He, he's been getting uh, support from some other uh, nations in the Middle East. So let's talk about that, and then let's switch to uh, the opposition side, if you would. Sure. Well, it's good that you mentioned that little boy, Alan Kurdi, because that boy, as sad and shocking as it was, it, it kind of represents a huge crisis that has, it's not just a Middle East crisis anymore, it's a global crisis, as we argued in our editorial, because the numbers are, as you pointed out, shocking, and um, there are signs that it could get even worse. Um, the instability has spread has already been evident in Iraq, but it's spreading to other countries. Um, Americans especially need to know that Lebanon is a very small country, only 4 million people, and they're hosting 1 million refugees. That's 25% of their entire population. It's quite similar in Jordan, another very small country. They have some 600,000 refugees. Turkey is hosting 2 million refugees. So this has been an immense burden for the countries around it. Um, you mentioned Russia's involvement, and that seriously complicates things, but it's not as if Russia has not already been deeply involved. Uh, Russia has a long-standing and very close relationship with the regime, not only of Bashar al-Assad, the dictator, but also his father, Hafez al-Assad. It goes back to 1970. Um, and, you know, Russia sees itself as uh, doing various things. It wants to protect its warm water port at Tartus, and I think also Putin, uh, Russia's leader, as well as um, the other leaders in Russia, they are very afraid of Islamist extremism. They've had to fight it uh, in Chechnya, and uh, they are um, afraid of uh, if the Assad regime falls, there would be one, maybe several extremist jihadi groups that could grow, metastasize. There are already Chechen extremists who have left the Russian area to go fight in Syria. So it's they see it as their, it's a very personal and direct thing for Russia. It's their battle. So while I certainly don't uh, support the Russian intervention, I think we Americans need to understand why Putin and the Russian government sees itself as deeply as this being a very, very close-to-home interest and a battle for them. So fighting alongside Russia and supporting Assad, there is Iran. Um, and Iran, too, has a long-standing, very close relationship with Syria, which is not sectarian. It's more uh, about regional interests. Iran, as everybody knows, is a Shiite state, and uh, Syria has been controlled for decades by a secular dictatorship. Um, but the interest is has to do with um, Iran wanting a partner in the Arab world, a partner who, after all, supported Iran during the long Iran-Iraq war, um, Iran also wants a, a dependable conduit for its other ally in the region, Hezbollah, which uh, is the reigning power in Lebanon now and has a very powerful militia, which has fought Israel to a standstill as recently as 2006. Hezbollah also sees the uh, survival of the Assad regime as an absolute must uh, because its chief arms supplier, its only arms supplier, really, is Iran. And Assyria is the conduit by which Iran sends its arms to Hezbollah. So Hezbollah and Iran have completely gone all in to support the Assad regime, no matter what. Hezbollah has many, many ground troops. They've suffered huge losses, and they're fighting ferociously against uh, the rebels in support of the regime. Iran has sent hundreds of advisors, and there's increasing talk that 
they may have ground troops or they may be sending ground troops to support the Assad regime. And uh, so that's what we see. And then on the other side, we have uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which has been um, ferociously determined to overthrow Assad. And they've been opposed to Assad's dictatorship for quite a long time, and they spent huge amounts of money supporting rebel forces fighting Assad. And Turkey has done the same, and so have the other Gulf monarchies, uh, Qatar, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates. So what we have is a regional sectarian war that is using Syria as a way to fight out its battles. And it's gotten very, very ugly. The casualties are horrific. And one of the points of our editorial is that uh, the only way this is going to be solved is not through military means. There has to be an international conference in which all the parties to the conflict are involved in some way and in which the players uh, agree to participate, not based on ultimatums or bottom-line demands, but people go to it and realize that there's going to be sacrifice on every side in order to get out of this. Um, as far as that, you know, I was reading that part that you had mentioned. Uh, can you talk about some of the previous failed attempts and, and what led to their demise? Sure. Well, uh, in 2012, which was um, about a year after the conflict broke out, there was a conference in Geneva, uh, which Kofi Annan, who was uh, named special envoy at the time, and he tried to get all the parties to come to Geneva to uh, basically come to an agreement. Um, and it would, that did not include all the parties. It included only several parties, Russia, the U.S., a couple other nations. But they worked out what's called the Geneva Communique, and there was uh, language that, uh, depending on how you want to describe it, is either artful or um, troublingly ambiguous. And that had to do with the transition, quote-unquote transition, and that had to do with uh, fierce arguments over whether Bashar al-Assad had to leave or not. And the rebels, uh, rebel forces and those behind them were insistent, as was the United States, that Assad had lost all legitimacy. His mass killing of civilians as well as insurgents had made him an illegitimate leader, that he had to go, that he was a war criminal, and that no future Syria could exist with him as a leader. And they said, bottom line demand, Assad has got to go. And to, to them, the transition meant Assad out. We have to figure out who replaces him. To Russia and its supporters, and obviously to the Syrian government themselves, they said, no way, you can't, you can't set that as an ultimatum. You know, we can talk about what a future government of Syria will be like. We can talk about reforms. But, you know, we're not going to start out with a baseline demand that Assad has to go. And it basically fell apart over that. Um, months, years Thousands of killings go by. They try to gin up the Geneva process again in 2014, just last year. And this time, it more or less fell apart over the demand uh, on the part of the U.S. and U.S. allies that Iran not be able to participate, which was actually a very foolish demand because Iran, you know, whether you like or dislike Iran and whether you think they're having a benign or malign influence on the conflict, they are a party to it. They have to be a party to the solution. It doesn't mean you have to agree with Iran, but you have to involve them as a player. And I think uh, to, Obama, to the Obama administration's credit, they have recently realized this, and they are now making it abundantly clear that they're not against Iran participating in an international conference to try to solve this. Before we break, Brad, I want to let you jump in here. Well, uh, uh, 
Uh, Ron, let me ask you this question. Uh, Abraham Lincoln used to tell a story uh, about a, a preacher, uh, and uh, he was advising his flock what to do when they came to the proverbial fork in the road of life. And the preacher would say, if you go right, uh, you're going to uh, suffer an eternity uh, of, you know, eternal damnation. Uh, if you go life, if you go left, you're going to spend uh, the whole, your whole afterlife in hell. And you know, sometimes that's what I feel like that's the choices we have in the Middle East. That there seems to be no good solution. I mean, one example is uh, we overthrow. Um, uh, Saddam Hussein. I guess at one point we were trying to overthrow uh, Assad, uh, but if you get rid of the dictators, what you get is chaos uh, and uh, religious fundamentalists. So, what, you know, what can, what is the solution? You know, assuming people can get together and talk, which is always a good thing. The Russians seem to be uh, set on uh, preserving Assad, uh, the United States and, I guess, European allies want him to go. Uh, wh where's the common ground for them uh, to discuss if they, they do resume negotiations? Ron, before you answer that, I'm going to leave that. I hate to do this. I'm going to leave that as our cliffhanger until we come out of the next break. So uh, we will let Roan answer that question on the other side of this break. Uh, if you'd like to uh, discuss what you think could be a possible solution in Syria or just talk about the situation in general, how much you think the United States should or should not be involved, feel free to join in on the conversation. Our number to do that is 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Again, this is executive producer Mark Grimaldi and our good friend Brad Bannon guest hosting. And we're joined in this half hour by Roan Carey of TheNation.com. Feel free to read his work at that website, TheNation.com, or follow him on Twitter at Roan Carey, that's R-O-A-N-E-C-A-R-E-Y. You can check out Brad's Twitter, at Brad Bannon, or myself, at Mark J. Grimaldi, that's G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. We'll be right af back after this break, and again, that number to join us is 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Leslie's executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, filling in for Leslie. And I'm joined by my fellow guest host, Brad Bannon. Uh, we are talking with Roan Carey of TheNation.com. You can follow Roan on Twitter at R-O-A-N-E-C-A-R-E-Y. And now before we went to break, Brad had asked Roan, uh, essentially, okay, say you get these parties to meet and uh, they're talking. Uh, you know, trying to figure out a solution in Syria. What could that solution look like? So, Roan, go ahead. Uh, I know you wanted to answer that question from Brad. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I think uh, there are some interim steps that uh, other nations can take, not just the ones that are parties to the conflict, that are in, very important, ones that we spell out in our editorial, that would help relieve the horrible agony. 
Step number one is we have to increase humanitarian aid to the refugee camps. That's something that we don't need a peace conference or a peace settlement or negotiations to handle. The United States, Saudi Arabia, European countries, all the wealthy nations of the world could all give significantly more. It wouldn't hurt our budgets at all. And they could go to supporting the camps, which, you know, they've turned into like cities in Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey. And what that would do is it would relieve pressure on the people living in those camps and it would actually reduce the norm, huge numbers of people who are leaving those camps and fleeing to Europe. They're leaving the camps precisely because the international community, community sorry, has cut back enormously on aid. So that's number one. We have to increase humanitarian aid. That's something we can do right away, and it's not hard to do. Uh, number two is the United States and Europe have to figure out a way to humanely accept many, many more refugees than they have been so far. We need to look at this in context and see that the countries surrounding Syria are hosting a staggering number of refugees. It's almost breaking those countries down. Europe the number of refugees, there's been so much publicity about refugees fleeing to Europe, and one would think that it's uh, a staggering number, something like 5% or 10% of the European population. Well, that's nonsense. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of Europe's population. They could easily accept all those refugees that are coming in. Europe has an aging population. It would actually do them some good in terms of their economies. The United States could certainly accept way more than the tiny numbers of refugees that we've accepted. We could easily accept at least 100,000. So that's step number two. Accept more refugees, give more humanitarian aid. Now, getting specifically to how, how to solve the conflict... Um, and I hate to do this to you, Rome, but we have about 90 seconds to finish it off, so I'll oh, let you finish it. Sorry. No, no, go okay. ahead. I want you to finish your point. Okay, so just just one thing in terms of solving the crisis. We don't we don't have any illusions about this uh, about uh, the parties being able to solve it quickly. It's a, it's terrifically complicated, and the enmity and hatred is very deep. But one thing that we point out in the magazine that could and should be done is there have been local ceasefires in the conflict. Um, those have not been encouraged enough. If we encourage more local ceasefires and do so in a way that has a kind of a political component to it, a political horizon, uh, in a way that tries to widen those ceasefires, then you can sort of tack those together with negotiations at an international conference that would try to sort of come to an agreement about uh, how to solve it in the long term. Um, a ceasefire is often a good first step towards solving a complicated conflict. It doesn't mean you've agreed on the contours of a future government. It doesn't mean you've agreed on rulers, but at least it stops the killing momentarily. And that's something that all the parties should focus on is temporary ceasefires, regional ceasefires, partial ceasefires. Try to knit them together into something broader. Try to do so in a way that looks at the political context and the interests of all the parties. Roan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and I really appreciate your piece. Honestly, it's it's truly given me hope uh, with this process, and uh, I'm going to encourage as many people as possible to read it and talk uh, to call their congressmen, call their congresswoman, and encourage them to uh, get involved uh, in this process. Uh, again, follow Roan on Twitter at r o a n e c a r e y. You can read his piece uh, about Syria at thenation.com. Brad and I will be right back with open phones.
Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer. Leslie is off as she's in New York City doing some live television, and she's also going to be a guest at uh, a, a conference, I believe, called Liberty Fest on October 10th. If you want to watch her tonight on TV, you can do so by tuning into Fox News Channel at 8 p.m. You can see her on the O'Reilly Factor as she debates Andrea Tanteros. In the meantime, I'm joined by our good friend uh, Brad Bannon, who is guest hosting with me this hour. And this is going to be the last half hour of the show where we open up the phones to you if you'd like to call in. We're going to be talking about guns in the wake of the UCC shooting in Oregon last Thursday. Um, And I want to share some news that was given to me this morning by uh, TRNS's Victoria Jones that I think is definitely relevant to the uh, topic of guns. Then we're going to get Brad's take and go to your calls. So if you'd like to join in on any of these topics, it's 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We are finding more uh, out about the Oregon uh, killer, Uh, the gunman who killed nine people at an Oregon community college last week before killing himself, ranted in writings that he left behind about not having a girlfriend, and wrote something to the effect of, other people think I'm crazy, but I'm not. I'm the sane one, a law, a, a law enforcement official said Monday. The writings were about two pages long. Uh, also, some faculty, staff, and students returned to the campus for the first time since the shooting, while President Obama announced he will travel to Roseburg, Oregon, uh, this Friday to meet privately with the victims' families in um, in a series of online postings over a decade. Uh, the mother of the killer, a registered nurse, Uh, said she kept numerous firearms in her home and expressed pride in her knowledge about them, as well as her son's expertise on the subject. Uh, She also opened up about her difficulties raising a son who used to bang his head against the wall and said that both she and her son struggled with Asperger's syndrome and autism spectrum disorder. Uh, the killer's post, or her, I'm sorry, the killer's mom's posts were found on Yahoo Answers, a site where she spent hours over the last 10 years mostly answering medical questions from strangers. Um, Harper, 64, the mother of the killer, said her son was no babbling idiot, nor his, is his life worthless. It is now. Uh, he's very intelligent and is working on a career in filmmaking. Um, uh, let's see. Da, da, da. So Alexis Jefferson, who worked with the mom at a California uh, care center around 2010, said the mom confided in her that she had placed her son in a psychiatric hospital when he didn't take his medication. She said, my son is a real big problem of mine. Um, she said the problem was when he didn't take his medication and she wouldn't get him out of the facility until he started taking his medication again. People, this guy clearly should not have passed a background check. He clearly should not have had a gun, yet he did. Okay, so there's problem number one. Uh, in addition, we're now finding out that the sheriff investigating the uh, the killings is effing crazy. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, He holds extremist views on gun control. He wrote in a 2013 uh, post that he would not enforce gun control laws and posted a video to his Facebook uh, account that suggested that 9-11 and Sandy Hook were part of a government conspiracy to take away guns. Now he says he doesn't believe that. Clearly this guy needs to be taken off the case. Uh, In Tennessee, We have Lieutenant Governor Ron Ramsey, who wrote on Friday, the day after the shooting, that the shooting was an example in which, quote, Christians and defenders of the West, end quote, have been targeted. I would encourage my fellow Christians who are serious about their faith to think about getting a handgun carry permit. Our enemies are armed. We must do likewise. 
Okay, so there's another problem, more guns, which clearly isn't helping the situation. And if you think the situation is going to get better with more guns and just having guns in your house, well, here's an example of why it shouldn't be. And this just breaks my heart, but it, it's it's the truth. This is what's going on. An 11-year-old boy in Tennessee has been held, 11 years old, has been held on suspicion of shooting dead an 8-year-old neighbor in an argument over a puppy. The boy has been charged with first-degree murder as a juvenile. The case could be transferred to adult court. Police say he killed the girl on Saturday night with his father's shotgun after she refused to let him see her puppy. She was a precious little girl, Latasha Dyer said through tears of her daughter, Michaela. She was a mommy's girl. No matter how bad a mood you were in, she could always make you smile. Apparently, each child had a puppy, the sheriff said. The boy wanted to see the 8-year-old's puppy, and she said no. Then he went and retrieved a gun. The boy fired the 12-gauge shotgun from inside his house, striking the girl as she stood in her yard, the sheriff said. The gun was stored in the closet without locks. Okay, there's another problem. This father should be held criminally liable for this murder. I think that should be a law that if your gun is taken, whether it's by your child or someone else, you are held responsible in any crimes who are that have been committed with that gun. That's another common sense piece of legislation that should be passed. Um, both children went to the same school. Dyer said, this is the mom of the girl who got killed, that she had previously approached the school principal about the 11-year-old, the killer, bullying her daughter. When we first moved to White Pine, he was making fun of her, calling her names, just being mean to her. I had to go to the principal about him, and he quit doing it for a while. And then all of a sudden yesterday, he shot her. The Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit organization that compiles data on gun violence, says 559 children aged 11 or under have been killed or injured in the U.S. in, a gun, in gun violence so far this year. That's almost 600 children, 11 or under, in 2015 that have been killed by guns, and it's only October. There's also a new study from the Washington Post that shows that there are now more guns than people in the United States. There's almost 40 million more guns than people in the United States. So, Brad, we clearly have a problem in this country, and we're need, we need to do something about it. You know, also in Victoria's news that I know I had shared with you, Brad, as that Senator uh, Minority Leader Harry Reid said that he's reaching out to other senators on moving background checks legislation, which obviously will be really tough in the Senate, where after the Sandy Hook murder, where basically babies were slaughtered. Republicans and red state Democrats blocked a bill uh, when the chamber was under Democratic control. Uh, Reed said, if we don't take action, we are equally responsible for innocent deaths as the sick individuals who plot and carry out the horrific measures. I agree with them. They have blood on their hands if they don't do anything, and they clearly care more about the money they get from the NRA and the fear of being primaried than they actually do people and children being slaughtered. Uh, Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, this uh, you know I you know commend um, Harry Reid uh, for making this push, uh, but the reality is uh, there is no way that the uh, Republican majority in the Senate or the House is going to consider anything. And I mean anything that limits uh, you know or restrains access to guns. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you need 60 votes to do anything uh, in the Senate. There are only 46 Democrats, uh, and it's just not going to happen. And this is a classic example um, of the system not working. Uh, and let me get my favorite example is uh, right after Sandy Hook. 
uh, President Obama proposed legislation that would eliminate that would eliminated the loophole that allows people to purchase guns at gun shows uh, to purchase the guns without a background check. Now that's a perfectly reasonable. Uh, it's very limited. Uh, at the time when the Senate considered the bill, 90% actually was 89% of Americans favored uh, closing the gun show loophole, including a majority of Republicans, by the way. And despite that, uh, the Senate didn't take any action. Uh, and it is because one of the reasons that you brought it up is the National Rifle Association. The National Rifle Association is incredibly well organized. Uh, it is has millions of dollars to spend on lobbying and political campaigns uh, from its members' dues. Uh, and uh, many uh, members of Congress, senators and representatives alike, are scared to death of the NRA. Uh, which is why, you know, I, again, I applaud Senator Reid for making this push, but nothing, you know, it's just going to go for naught. Uh, and it's a real problem because what the senator wants, Senator Reid wants to do, is not, he's not confiscating anybody's guns. Uh, this is not a, uh, a uh, you know, universal, you know, attempt to limit handgun control. It is a perfectly reasonable uh, plan to make sure that if you buy a gun at a gun show, you have to have a background check, which by which you don't need right now if you buy a gun at a gun show. I think that's and, a... Oh, bad and it's completely... The, when it comes to gun control, the, the system is completely dysfunctional. And, you know, you, you spoke about the NRA. Uh, there's numbers out today that so far in 2015, the gun rights lobby has outspent the gun control lobby about six to one. I'm surprised it's not even higher, to be completely honest with you. But we do see, I will say, the the gun control lobby, you know, if you want to call it that, which honestly it's compromised more of just a lot of regular Americans than the NRA, which is just, you know, has a lot of money and political push behind it, are getting more engaged in this topic. Unfortunately, it you know, it's a lot of massacres are happening in the meantime, and it seems to get people angry and finally doing something about it. You know, we can't wait for another massacre. I argue that people need to contact their congressperson and make enough noise where, the, you know, it, it, they just need to make so much noise that the Congress has to actually listen to them. And maybe it won't, but that's the only thing I can think of in the meantime, Brad, because it's going to take otherwise another election, and you're going to have to have a, a majority, and you're going to have to hope it goes, and, and a Democratic president, and you're going to have to hope that it goes differently than the last time that we had that situation. But I don't know about you, but I, I'm sick of sitting on my hands. And I'm going to call, you know, whoever I have to call to get something done. It's going to take people who live in red districts calling and emailing and tweeting their congressperson or their senator, telling them enough is enough and they want something done. Because that's what they're listening to right now is the NRA. They're not afraid of their constituents, even though you just said this, Brad, a majority of Republicans believes in background checks. Now, the, 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 the situation to consider is do they believe in them enough to call their congressperson over and over again? I don't know about that. But we have to encourage them to. And the other thing is, which 
I think you probably heard the president in a very angry speech in reacting to the UCC shooting. He encouraged NRA members to make sure that their organization is pro- uh, properly representing them. And I think he was right to do so because a majority of NRA members also believe in universal background checks. I mean, I think that's a good idea to encourage them, if they really believe that, to contact the NRA and tell them what they believe. I mean, those are two steps that we can take in the meantime. Maybe they have long odds, but don't we have to try, Brad? Well, yeah, we do, and that's a good point. I mean, there have been, I've seen several surveys of uh, NRA members, and a majority of NRA members do favor reasonable, you know, reasonable and limited attempts to limit guns, like the background checks for gun show purposes. The problem is that the leadership of the NRA uh, is basically opposed to any, and I mean any attempts uh, to uh, control uh, or limit uh, or regulate the uh, ownership of guns. I mean, anything. And the NRA argues that when they argued against the background check legislation proposed by President Obama, their reasoning was, yeah, it sounds limited, uh, but it's really just a slippery slope uh, from uh, stronger background checks to federal agents showing up at your home and confiscating all your guns. They basically I mean, that's lied. how the NRA leadership uh, approaches this. And it, there's no room for compromise, uh, and it's a terrible situation. Uh, and you're right, the NRA is more powerful uh, by factors of 20 than any of the uh, several gun control groups uh, that are out there. Uh, and it goes back to one major problem. And if you talk about gun control, if you talk about global warming, the common factor is there's too much money in American politics. There is. It all goes back, honestly. It was already bad, but it goes back to Citizens United, and that's why if I had my way, the first thing I would have you know, my Democratic president do is, and if we get a better Supreme Court, is, is bring that back up. In the meantime, uh, we're going to have a, a quick break here and get back to all of our calls. But uh, quickly, Brad, uh, Governor Cuomo brought up a bit of uh, an unorthodox idea. I kind of like it. I mean, maybe it's crazy, but he says that the Democrats in Congress should give Republicans a taste of their own medicine and threaten to shut down the government unless gun legislation is passed. I mean, what do you think of the idea, Brad? Well, uh, I am certainly uh, support gun control, uh, but I'm not sure that's the way to go uh, because the system is so dysfunctional as it is. I don't see making it more dysfunctional as a solution to anything, and that's what it would do. Uh, I personally think that the solution for this problem is not going to come from Congress. Uh, It's going to come, if it comes, uh, from the Supreme Court. Uh, Up until the 1970s, the Supreme Court said that uh, the Second Amendment does not preclude the government taking action uh, on on guns to protect the health and safety of the citizens of the United States. Uh, Richard Nixon became president. He appointed several conservative Supreme Court justices who all of a sudden decided that the Second Amendment precluded any attempts uh, to control guns and ownership and use. And honestly, what this is going to take uh, is for a Democratic president uh, 
uh, to appoint, uh, to replace two of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and uh, those justices would go back to the traditional reading of the Second Amendment, which allows the uh, federal government to take, re and state governments, reasonable uh, attempts to uh, protect uh, people from gun violence. And that that's what it's going to take. It's going to take nothing that Congress will never deal with it. It's not institutionally capable of doing so the way it's constructed. Uh, the best hope is to elect a Democratic president who will uh, appoint justices uh, who, uh, who look at the Second Amendment the way the Supreme Court used to, uh, which was, uh, you know, it you know, you can't take guns from the militia or the National Guard, uh, but it does allow P uh, governments to take reasonable steps to limit uh, gun violence. And that's what it's going to take, in my opinion. All right, Brad, thank you for that take. Once we get back from this break, we're going to take all of your calls who are waiting on hold. Anybody who wants to join in, get in now. It's 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in with Brad Bannon. And as promised, we are going to your calls. We're first joined by Michael from the Bronx. Michael, go ahead. Each of our callers have about a minute. Thank you. Going as fast as I can. First off, i got to address a certain caller that was very rude to Victoria Jones the other day, saying that so many words that just because she has a British accent, she shouldn't be saying anything about guns. Excuse me. I'm an American citizen, and just as... He's proclaiming his right to have a gun. It's also my right to walk out of my house without having to worry about staring down the barrel of a gun. It's not just an American citizen right. It's a human right. All right, so he was out of line right there. Secondly, I'm sick and tired of this claim of an attack on Christians because every person in that Oregon location was shot. It's various um, formations, but there was no one that was spared from a gunshot. So stop it with that. And perhaps if they had some gun safety reform, you wouldn't have to worry about that. And as far as Congress goes, here's an idea. Each and every Republican and the NRA that don't want to do anything about um, this gun violence, they keep saying more guns, more guns, they encourage it. So I would suggest for the feds to charge each and every one of them with Criminally negligent homicide. All right, Michael, thank you for that take. We now go to Paul in Washington. Paul, go ahead. Uh, it's me, Reggie, from Decatur, Mark. Oh, sorry, Reggie, go ahead. We'll go to Paul next. Okay, uh, well, where is the NRA, beloved number one darling, Wayne LaPierre, and all of this ever since the Oregon shooting happened last, just last week? Where has he been hiding all this time? I mean, doesn't he have anything else to say about this? Or is he just hiding, waiting, and biding, biding his time until it is right for him to come out of his his, hole, his rabbit hole, if you will. It's sad. He has a standard playbook, which is wait about a week or two and then say the same old crap that doesn't help anybody so he doesn't quote-unquote offend anyone. Uh, we now go to Paul in Washington. Paul, go ahead. How you doing? Good, Paul. Thanks for uh, calling in. Sorry, we're brief here. Yeah. How you doing, Brad? Are you still there? I'm here, Paul. All right. Good to talk to you again. Uh, you know, I think the one piece of, of legislation, and I call it gun safety legislation, and we don't want to call it control 
We don't want to call it regulation because uh, the other side, they hate both of those words. Control and regulation are all bad things no matter what you do. But gun safety, the number one piece of gun safety uh, legislation that I would like to see, and it would have to be done at the state level, so you have to get a hold of your state legislature, is, is a liability insurance for firearms. This would, this would prevent a lot of things. The first thing it would do, I mean, you cannot drive a car off a car lot without insurance. You should not be able to walk out of a gun shop with a gun unless you have insurance on it. You, buy, you contact an insurance company, you buy the insurance for whatever kind, of, and, the, and this is the free market regulating. The, the insurance companies will be able to construct actuaries that will determine which guns are the most uh, dangerous or the most... Lo- Paul, it's a great idea. Sorry we ran out of time. Brad, thank you. Always a pleasure, Mark. All right. Thank you, America. Leslie will be back tomorrow. Again, this is Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie. Check her out on the O'Reilly Factor at 8. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.